My name is Anne DiGiulio. Welcome to the American Lung Association's Tobacco Cessation Podcast. Today we're going to talk about tobacco cessation and Medicaid expansion. Medicaid expansion was a key provision of the Affordable Care Act, expanding Medicaid to 138% of the federal poverty level, or a little under $2,500 a month for a family of three. As a result of a court case, the National Federation of Independent Businesses versus Sebelius decided on June 28, 2012, Medicaid expansion is optional for states to take up. However, if a state does take up Medicaid expansion, they are required to cover essential health benefits, which include per the preventive services requirement. The preventive services requirement means that any service or treatment given an A or a B grade by the United States Preventative Services Task Force must be covered without cost sharing. Tobacco cessation is given an A grade by the United States Preventative Services Task Force, or USPSTF. As a result, Medicaid expansion programs should be covering these treatments without cost sharing for expansion enrollees. Currently, 37 states, including the District of Columbia, have adopted Medicaid expansion. This coverage is important. We know that Medicaid enrollees smoke at a rate over twice as high as those enrolled in private insurance. It's 23.9% for Medicaid enrollees compared to 10.5% for those enrolled in private insurance. However, we know that Medicaid enrollees want to quit at the same levels as privately enrolled individuals. Today, I'm going to be talking with Michael Pesco about some research he did regarding Medicaid expansion and tobacco cessation utilization and tobacco cessation treatment utilization. Here's our conversation. Hello, I'm joined today by Michael Pesco. Michael, would you mind introducing yourself? Yes, my name is Michael Pesco. I'm an assistant professor in the economics department of Georgia State University. Do you mind telling us a little bit about your research in general? Sure. Well, let me start back with my training. So I received a PhD in economics from the University of Illinois, Chicago in 2012. Frank Chalupka was my advisor there, and he's well known for his tobacco control efforts. During my uh, dissertation year at UIC, I actually lived here in Atlanta, where I live currently, and I worked at the CDC in their office on smoking and health, and I got involved with further tobacco control research efforts. I took my first post-PhD job at Weill Cornell Medical College in their Department of Public Health in New York City. And while there, I continued my tobacco control efforts, but I also uh, became more involved with healthcare delivery system research as well. So to explain the research methods that I typically use, I generally use retrospectively collected data and I evaluate policy changes that were happening in some of the, the places or at some of the times and not others using classical quasi-experimental methods. So while I was at Weill Cornell, I received an American Cancer Society Research Scholar Grant to study the impact of Affordable Care Act provisions on high-risk tobacco users. I'd like to give a particular shout out to my colleagues, uh, Stephen Hill, he's a senior economist at the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, and Catherine McLean, she's a professor at Temple University. We proposed to study a number of different provisions of the Affordable Care Act, but one in particular that we're interested in studying is the effect of expanding Medicaid. So all states were initially supposed to expand Medicaid in 2014, but a subsequent Supreme Court decision allowed states to choose whether or not they expand it. A number of states opted to do so right away in 2014, but other states chose to do so at later points in time. And some states haven't expanded yet at all, including Georgia, for example. 
as economists, we get excited about that kind of variation in timing because we have some states that have expanded, some states that haven't expanded, and over time that changes. So we have kind of a treatment groups and control groups that at different points in time. And we are particularly interested in the impact of expanding Medicaid on access to smoking cessation medications. So, Michael, you mentioned a little bit about your work on tobacco cessation coverage in state Medicaid expansion programs. Can you tell us a little bit about that research and some of those findings from that paper that you published last year? Yeah, so we used administrative data that's contained within the Medicaid state drug utilization data. All the states, they have an incentive to keep track of the utilization of different prescription medications to get reimbursement from Medicaid uh, program. We use that data then from 2011 to 2017. Of course, a number of states, they expanded their Medicaid programs in 2014. And in some other states, they expanded it all the way through the end of our study period in 2017. Some states didn't expand at all, even by the end of 2017. So we kind of take advantage of that gradual rollout of expansion when it occurred to study what impact the the expansion at the time that it happened have on states' utilization of smoking cessation medications. So the three types of medications we look at are Shantix, Zyban, and and Nicotrol. And uh, we estimated what economists call differences in differences models. And we determined that Medicaid, they paid for 34% more uh, prescriptions for these different drugs, Oshantix, Zyban, and Nicotrol. We tried to figure how much of this reflected new utilization because it's not necessarily surprising that uh, Medicaid would pay more for prescriptions when the Medicaid enrollments have increased. Nevertheless, we, by studying utilization of prescription medications prior to the ACA for people that were privately insured, people that were uninsured, people on Medicaid. The Medicaid participants actually had some of the highest utilization of these these drugs. And so bringing people, whether from uninsured or privately insured, into Medicaid, uh, we would anticipate that increased utilization. Using that kind of math, we determined that there was a 24% increase in new utilization of these uh, smoking cessation medications. Some of the 34% increase in utilization uh, was crowded out by people that were previously getting these smoking cessation medications, whether from private insurance or from no insurance. But nevertheless, the majority of it, approximately 66% of the increase in utilization reflect the utilization that would not have occurred in the absence of the Medicaid expansion. And so we feel like we really identified a a source of pent-up demand uh, for the services. And one of the benefits then of the Medicaid expansion was being able to supply for this pent-up demand. Some other things that we found was Chantix increased by more than Zyban. Um, which makes sense because Shantix is a more expensive drug. So reducing the, the cost of both Zyban and Shantix to zero would have a, a relatively greater impact on the price of Shantix. And we also didn't find any impact on prescribing for traditional nicotine replacement therapy products of gum, patches, et cetera. And we think that this reflects just easy access that people had even prior to the Medicaid expansion to these products. Medicaid expansion really helped with the prescription-based drugs, so Shantix, Zyban, and and Nicotrol, and and providing access to those medications for people that wanted it. So, Michael, this is really wonderful information and shows the need that people have and the desire people have to quit smoking and quit tobacco use. What do you think are some of the most important takeaways from your specific study? Well, we think that there was a pent-up demand for uh, smoking cessation products that Medicaid helped to meet. Unsurprisingly, there was an increase 
but most of that increase, 66% of it, reflect a utilization that would not have happened in the absence of the Medicaid expansion. And that will translate into sizable reductions in, in, in smoking and hopefully for the states that expanded, reductions in healthcare spending associated with smoking-related disease and death. So we didn't have a chance to do a full kind of cost-effectiveness analysis in that sense, but we think that you know, providing access to smoking cessation medications that could have been very important in terms of helping with kind of cost effectiveness. So I guess my next question, Michael, is where you see this research going next or if it has additional implications. It sounds like it might. And just kind of curious what your next plans are or where somebody else could pick up your research and, you know, continue to expand upon it. Yeah, we're also interested in how the Medicaid expansion increased access to other drugs that are important. We've documented that new utilization of psychotropic medications for for mental illness, that increased in similar ways to for smoking cessation medications, and also for breast cancer prevention medications as well. We've published two other papers as well using those classes of drugs. We've also done some work looking at small employers, and there's regulations pertaining to when an employer can levy a tobacco surcharge. Employers, they're allowed to charge up to 50% more for non-smokers than smokers in small employer marketplaces, provided that certain condition is met, and that is that the employer must provide a workplace wellness program that provides smoking cessation services. We published a paper in Health Affairs And we documented that many small employers, they were utilizing the surcharge, but they were not providing a workplace wellness program uh, with smoking cessation coverage. You know, they were basically not in compliance with the spirit of the Affordable Care Act. We documented this relationship in 2016 and 17. Good news is that in 2018, we observed a sharp decrease in the use of smoking cessation surcharges in workplace wellness programs. We've also published that paper in Health Affairs as well. We attribute the reduction in the use of smoking cessation surcharges for small employers to a lawsuit in 2017, which actually targeted large employers and required Macy's to stop using tobacco surcharges entirely. And we think that there was kind of a chilling effect in the use of surcharges as a result of this lawsuit that was brought about by the Department of Labor in 2017. They had an unintended benefit of reducing surcharge use in small employer marketplaces. Can I interject and ask a quick question? So you talked about wellness programs and tobacco surcharges. I think the research on those um, also shows that they have been ineffective. And you didn't do any research on that, right? Yeah, just whether they used the surcharges and were in compliance with the policy of providing wellness programs, that's basically what what we documented, right? Yeah, there's another health affairs article, and I forgot who wrote it, that showed that tobacco surcharges, especially in the individual market, didn't actually help people quit smoking, but just made people not buy insurance. Yeah, that's, I think, Abby Friedman's study there, yeah. right? Yeah, I, I'm aware of that paper. Yeah, we did something similar as well. We uh, are interested, too, in how accurately people self-report their smoking when purchasing insurance, right? We studied uh, over time enrollment counts of people that when they sign up for health insurance and healthcare.gov in the individual market, whether they indicated being a tobacco user or not, 
initially it seemed like the rates were not that far away from where we would expect them to be based on survey data, which we can see if people, you know, where people are buying insurance from and if they smoke or not with no financial disincentive to report their smoking, right? So we can kind of observe what we think the relationship should be with survey data and then go look at how people are actually enrolling using healthcare.gov data. Um, but then unfortunately, more recently than over time, it seemed like there was some maybe learning that people did and people are much less likely to accurately report their smoking status. There's large discrepancies between what we observe in survey data and healthcare.gov. So we are concerned about this and from the perspective that if people conceal their tobacco use, one unintended consequence of this could be that now they're less likely to want to speak to their healthcare providers about their tobacco use because the, they could be retroactively assessed the tobacco surcharge if uh, some kind of a claim for smoking cessation goes up in the billing. So that is a concern to us and so we do want to kind of doc, try to document what impact the level of the surcharge has had on people being willing to talk to their physicians about their smoking, for example. That research is ongoing actively. That's great and really important work to do. Is there anything else that you'd like to share with us that we haven't asked about? No, I don't think there was anything else. Great. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and learned something new. Check back soon and we'll have another one. Thanks so much. Have a good day.